Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. Hello, everybody at home. Um, I'm going to reveal a little bit about how the sausage gets made as we record this. It's Thursday night. Um, and I'm a little bit nervous. See, when the schedule originally came out, I was excited that, that Henry signed me up for, for Trinity Sunday uh, because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't apologize for it. I'm a theology nerd. I'm a Bible nerd. And I live for these sort of academic things. And I love challenging passages. It's, it's, it's fun for me. And I, I thought about the words of St. Augustine that uh, to deny the Trinity is to lose your soul, but to try to explain the Trinity is to, is to lose your mind that we're <laughs> speaking of this great and wonderful mystery of who God is and what he's like. But as the day got closer and closer and the headlines began to build, uh, I began to think about another quote from another great Christian thinker, Karl Barth, who once said that a good preacher stands at the pulpit with a Bible in the one hand and a newspaper in the other. And it occurred to me that this is not the week I really want to be preaching from the newspaper. Um, but... It's the week we have. And I'm a little trepidatious, too, to speak this on Thursday night because by the time you watch this on Sunday morning, who knows what's going to happen next. Uh, every day it just seems to get stranger and more frightening. Uh, I am hoping by Sunday morning cooler heads have prevailed, but I have no way of knowing that. And so I've really wrestled with these passages and this idea of the Trinity and how to speak something meaningful in a moment when there's so much confusion and fear. And then I wondered about myself. Is, is all of my learning a waste of time? What good is, is academic uh, preparation and, 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 and reading through scholars and old crusty translations and books that nobody wants to read that put people to sleep on the airplane. What good is all of that in all of this chaos? But, but then I felt the opposite pull. What's the good in doing all of that if it doesn't have something to say to us in the midst of all that chaos. And lo and behold, as I wrestled with all of that, I put aside some of the other passages and I just focused on our psalm for the week. And it occurred to me that is the most profound starting point we could possibly have. When we wrestle with questions of who in the world is God, what is God like, and what does God want from us in moments like this? By the way, questions we should ask on Trinity Sunday. What better place is there to start with the psalm? See, Psalm 150 comes from uh, the, the Jewish hymn book. These were the songs that ancient Israel sang. And if you've been through your Old Testament, you know that they had as many, if not more, rough times than they did good times. I, I am incredibly blessed that I was born in, into the post-Vietnam era. I was born in 1974, and through most of my lifetime, America's actually had it pretty good. 9-11 was terrifying, but... Uh, besides 9-11, this is the most challenging thing I've ever lived through. But for the, the saints of old in the Old Testament, generation after generation were put through uh, difficult time after difficult time. And yet in this psalm, we are not just invited but commanded to praise the Lord. No regard to our circumstances. 
And that says something to us, that whether times are good or bad, God deserves to be praised. But that's also encouraging for us because, after all, God will still be there when this bad moment passes. That whatever this is going to be like, it will not be this way forever. And when it's all done, the Lord will still be there and he is good. Amen. And so this commandment in Psalm 150 that we ought to praise the Lord is, is not drudgery. It's, it's not that God needs an ego boost. It's that we are called to remember that in the darkest of hours, in the most trying of times, God is still good and he is not done. So as we begin this exploration of who is God and what does he want from us, we start with this idea that he is good when our circumstances are not. And whoever and whatever this trinity is, it is a source of hope and encouragement. It is a source of truth and compassion. That this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is doing a good thing, even in the midst of our worst situations. And with that in mind, then we begin to go back through these passages and start to look for some things that not only give us some insight in who God is, but I believe truly give us some new ways to look at the challenges that are in front of us. Now, like I said, I'm not going to go in depth into those challenges. Brother Bart with his, get there with the newspaper in one hand. I'm not going to do that. There's a lot of reasons for that. Number one, I don't have all the answers for how to fix these problems. Number two, if I started to talk about a few of my ideas of maybe how to fix it, I'm sure I would offend a few of you. And number three, if I really got into it, I would eventually get around to offending all of you. So I'm not going to try. I'm not. But what I want to do is I want to look at what we can learn about who God is and what he wants from you and I based on these passages that are put here before us. Number one, going back to Genesis, that God exists in a community. This is the thing Augustine said that would make you lose your mind. There is only one God, but he exists as three persons, right? So we think about the diagram we've done in Sunday school through the years that, that, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. It gets confusing. But I want you to think about this notion that if God is a communal God, if he exists as three, that is a powerful statement that community and connection and relationships matter. And if you don't see that off the bat, just keep reading through Genesis chapter 1. And notice that in the day's account... There's this phenomenal thing that happens. In day one, God separates light from the dark and gives both a name. But it's not until day four that God gets around to creating the sun, the moon, the planets, right? In day two, God separates all the wet stuff, the firmament above and below uh, from the land, and then on day three, creates all of the plant life, the inanimate life that exists. Days five and six, God creates the birds who inhabit the seas. 
uh, excuse me, the skies, the fish who inhabit the seas, and then ground animals. And then finally, God creates you and I in his image and with authority over all of this. Now, there are clear relationships as you work through this passage. Sometimes we get caught up on things like, do we mean literal 24-hour days and how old is the earth? I want you to lay all that aside for the moment. Let's not go there, but look at the relationships. Everything that exists, exists in a relationship with everything else. And these relationships are meant to be harmonious, and yet there is also a hierarchy. Not in an oppressive way, right? But there are rules to this. The fish belong in the water. Not because taking out the fish out of the water breaks the rules and that's a naughty fish, but because the fish needs the water to live. The rule is there for the good of the fish. In the same way, we don't throw crocodiles in the air because gravity kicks in and it's not a really good thing for the crocodile. There is a place for everything. And everything exists in a harmony with everything else. This is a reflection of how important relationship is to our God. And then this little bit about you and I, that human beings were created to be in God's likeness and that God gave us dominion over all of these things. Now, we know how the story goes. We know when we get to chapter two, we know what the first human beings are going to do. And we know that this divine image gets wrecked by sin. But remember, there's enough of it left that God looked at humanity and said, I can do something about this. That the image of God inside of us is scarred and distorted, but it's not so broken that God can't redeem it. This too is hopeful in a moment like this. That no matter how wrong I am, God can redeem me because I was made in the likeness of God. That also means that no matter how wrong my enemy is, God can redeem them too. And maybe in a moment of strife and conflict, when we're all confused and afraid and divided and we don't know what to do and we don't know who to blame and we don't know how we got into this mess and we're not sure how to get out of it, that we can stop and remember that the people who we're arguing with along the way are loved by the same God who loves us. That they are invited to redemption and forgiveness by the blood of the same Jesus who shed his blood for us. And this too is hopeful and, and maybe brings our anxiety down a little bit and humbles us. And then to think about our own internal turmoil. I, I, I really struggle with this one. What does it mean to be made in God's image? And, and, and people have argued through the years that maybe it should be thinking about ourselves as a body and a mind and a spirit the same way that God is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. After all, uh, the Son was the Word or Logos or mind of God. We read that in John chapter 1. And so there is some bit of that. I don't know about you, but through all of this struggle, I have felt myself pulled in multiple directions. I've had those conversations in my own head where part of me wants to argue one thing while another part of me is worried about something else. And maybe this too in some small way is a reflection of the vast community that is the Trinity. But above all else, it is a calling for us to recognize that God knew what he was doing when he created this world. That God creates rules for the benefit of life, 
that as we search for order in the midst of chaos, we are looking for order that encourages and sustains life. God did not create life to follow rules. He created rules to order life. And as we're dealing with our own chaotic moment, maybe that's a touchstone for us. After all, our earthly parents, our early parents were commended in, in Genesis 2 to try to subdue the earth, but we subdue it with an eye towards life. And then finally, a little shift that I really had not noticed before this week. In Genesis 2, we're told that God gave the dominion of the earth to the men and women created in his image. And yet when we get to the closing of Matthew's gospel with the Great Commission, Jesus tells us that he has been given all authority, not only in the heavenly realms, but also here on the earth. And then he says to his disciples, I give you this commission to go into the world and proclaim my gospel and baptize people in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this too is an opportunity for reflection because... Under the commands in Genesis chapter 2, when we look at a mess like we have now, we are entirely on the hook for it. After all, God told the first human beings, okay, I made you a good world, now go take care of it. And we have made an incredible mess out of it. And yet in Matthew 28, Jesus says, look, that authority has now been given to me. You're not going to fix this world. I'm not going to fix this world. Our politicians in Washington, D.C., the pundits on the internet and television and the radio, the ad hoc crew of constitutional experts who pop up on Facebook on the daily are not going to fix this. Jesus is going to fix it. And he's going to fix it when he gets around to fixing it. And that may not be our timetable, and that's okay. What we have instead is a call not to focus on the troubles of the moment, but in good times and in bad times, to focus ourselves on telling other people about the Jesus who has redeemed the image of God in us and inviting them, if they are willing to receive him, to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to join under the Lordship of Jesus. I know we're all stressed out. I know we're all freaked out. But in the end, we win. You could turn to the last two books of Revelation. It all gets better. The old earth goes away. The new one shows up. Nobody's crying. Nobody's sick. Nobody's dying. Nobody feels oppressed. Nobody's in danger. God has it all in his hands. It's going to be a long and bumpy road till we get there. But while we're on that long and bumpy road, we shouldn't get so caught up in these struggles. We should instead focus and trust that God deserves our praise, as the psalm says, that Jesus is in charge, as Matthew 28 says, and that other people, even people we disagree with, even people we may not like, are loved by God, and they need to hear from us that Jesus loves them and wants to invite them into community with him. So what do we do? Well, fortunately, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul gives us some excellent, excellent advice. Advice that comes from his own strifes and sufferings. 
He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. This is the same thing Psalm 150 said, right? This is Paul. Rejoice. Paul, they just arrested you for preaching. Rejoice. Paul, they're throwing things at you. Rejoice. Paul, the ship is sinking. Rejoice, right? Whatever we're facing, we can rejoice. Aim for restoration. People need to be restored to sound community with God and with one another. We were created to live in harmonious community. Don't focus on any outcome that doesn't restore, that doesn't lead to freedom, that doesn't lead to life, that doesn't lead to understanding. Aim for restoration. Now, Paul says aim for it. He doesn't say attain it. Attain it is beyond us. We're not in charge of the outcome. Jesus said in Matthew 28, that's his department. But we strive for it nonetheless. Comfort one another. We definitely need to comfort one another. Agree with one another. This one's tough because we don't all agree. We all look at the situation through all these different lenses. And if I could get every member of Christ Church in one room, which we're not going to do because of coronavirus, but if I could and everybody could sit there with a whiteboard and write down in their opinion, what do we need to do? And we all held up our whiteboards. There would probably be 300 different answers on the boards. We don't agree about earthly things all the time. So what is Paul saying? What can we agree on? Well, we can agree in the love of God. We can agree in the wisdom of our heavenly father. We can agree in the power and the blood of his divine son. And we can agree that the Holy Spirit binds us together and preserves us no matter what. Paul says this as well. Live in peace Y'all, this is confessional time. I have not been peaceful through all of this. Sometimes I am guilty of taking it upon myself to become the keyboard warrior, to go out into cyberspace and right all of the wrongs I see. I have been so caught up in conflict. But this isn't the way of Jesus. Paul says that we should live in peace. What did he mean by that? Peace towards whom? Well, peace with one another as believers, certainly that, but also peace towards people who disagree with us, even people who are actively working to thwart what we believe in, that there is no room in the Christian heart for animosity, that it should never be the work of a Christian to cause strife. We should be agents of peace. Now, that's not to say that the things we teach won't cause strife, but that's not our aim. We are looking for peaceful resolutions. What can we do to bring the temperature down? What can we say to help people take a breath and listen and speak a little more carefully? This is what we should strive for. It's what we can model in the way we treat one another. And then Paul promises this. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Friends, I could think of no better closing words than that. That as we nervously await the ending of this trying season in our nation, that come what may, whether things get better or whether they get a whole lot worse, the God of love and peace will be with you and with me now to the end of the age. Thanks be to God.
Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.